0: Seated, we'll dismiss our uh, school aged kids to head to the back. And uh, while they're doing that, let me invite you, if you haven't already, to turn in your Bible or your device or whatever you have there close to you to uh, Galatians 6. I know you got a big packet of things when you came in today. Um, we got our Lent guides, and we'll talk about that later um, at the end of the service. Um, also, our connection card, and just a quick, brief word here. If you're new, um, it's a place where you can, uh, perforated edge, you can tear this thing off, and we would love to have a record of your visit. And uh, for all of us, if there's anything that we can pray for you about, we'll be gathering together tomorrow as a staff um, to pray for these things. And then, even as I spoke last week, what's God doing in your life? There's some great encouragement to see the gospel working out in our people, and uh, if you um, feel um, led at all to just jot down what God's been doing in and through you, brag on him a little bit, we would love to celebrate with you and, uh, and some of those things. Also, uh, one of our pastors, Jason, is in uh, China, and um, if you've been around us very long at all, you know Jason and he has been uh with us for the entirety of our plants and he is um in China to adopt a little baby girl, Hattie Jane, and so um supposed to meet her tonight. Um our tonight there tomorrow. So we've been praying for him. I told somebody earlier there's no greater fish out of water than Jason in China. Um, even his pictures of him on the on the on the on the wall is just awesome it's like uh just so uh anyway we've been praying for them and my heart's with them and i just can't wait to hear some of the gospel stories that they're going to tell we wrap up um ephesians today uh before we do that i just want to be still just a moment and encourage you just to prepare your heart for this um not just to wrap up ephesians but for what god has for you you know we serve a very personal god Uh, The Bible says that his eyes are always upon us, that he desires to lead and to guide us. Um, And many of us are struggling with different things in here. Some have come just, man, you just had the craziest week. It has just been brutal from all sides. You're weary, about to tap out, and you need God's just encouragement. Others are living um, with secret sin, and you've been hiding it really well. Um, And God is calling you into the light, and maybe that's the step that you take today. Maybe some in here aren't part of God's family. You're on the outside looking in. You don't know what this is that we get so excited about singing um, about. And uh, I pray today that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to this truth. So let's take just a moment. And if you would just ask God to speak to you, just kind of where you're at. If you would just ask God to speak to you. and. Father, we, um, we bow humbly before you and your word today. We've gathered to bless you, um, for our voices to be lifted on high, to declare with all that we are and to everyone around us that you are the most glorious thing. Sometimes our lives contradict that a little bit and we live for something else, um, but I pray that we would realign our passions and priorities even this morning. You would get great praise for that. Your word tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice when even one center, sinner repents, and um, Lord, we pray that even that's going on, and that's a beautiful sound to your, to your ears. Draw us closer to you, help us, Holy Spirit, to see Jesus as Jesus points us to um, the heart of the Father, and I pray that in his name, Amen. Uh, Ephesians has been a great book for me. I've loved um, every bit of of it. Um, It's a little challenging to preach through in the manner that we have. It talks about circumcision a lot, Um, and so uh, so and that was something that is certainly culturally relevant. At the time, what had happened to these churches in Galatia, um, if you've been here for every sermon since we started, um, you, you could get up here and, and recap this, but there had been some Judaizers, some false teachers, who had come from Jerusalem, kind of where the hub of the church was, and they had come claiming another gospel, that Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection alone was not enough for salvation, you needed to believe that, plus you needed to do these other things. You needed to look like us, basically, is what they're saying. You needed to look like us and to act like us. And what they kind of brought in with them, this false gospel of an us versus them mentality. And it's one that we're even guilty of. Um, we are more apt to speak to someone who looks like us, maybe in the same walk of life, than someone who doesn't look like us. That's inherent in our nature, our sinful nature. And what Paul is saying, that there's just one gospel, and it is Jesus Christ alone by faith alone. Alone. And he is saying it over and over and over. And then we get to this part in verse 11 of chapter six where he is kind of drawing this thing to an end and he is with an exclamation point in essence. He takes the pen from probably the amanuensis that's helping him out or his uh, secretary who's right there who's helping jot all these, all these words down. He takes the pen. He says in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. Um, as in essence, we're going to bold this and underline it. We're writing it big. I want you to see this. This is important. This is his maybe for some of them the last words that they would ever hear from Paul. Paul loved them dearly. Imagine yourself, as was the case when um, families uh, were missionaries just a couple hundred years ago, as they would be leaving their family and maybe seeing them for maybe the last time. And they were going to exchange words. We have several of these diaries from some of these great missionaries that encapsulate exactly what happened. These last letters that they were wrote or these last greetings that they shared with their family. And that's what Paul's doing here. Hey, I want you to hear this. Maybe think about your son or daughter going away to college. You're not gonna see them for a little bit or enlisting in in the military and these are kind of your last instructions for them. Hey, this is important. This is what Paul says. See, with these bold, these large letters I'm writing to you. And he's gonna summarize the idea that he started the chapter with basically now in bold letters that there are two paths offered in this life. God's way by grace through faith. If you take that Road, there's nothing you can boast in and of yourself. It's not because of anything that you've done. It's by grace through faith. Or there's man's way by human effort and good works. The kind of works that you would do and look up and brag on yourself a little bit. Hey man, look at what I did. These two things offered before you. These two ideas have been at war throughout the book. These Judaizers teaching this false gospel. And Paul, one last time, exposing their hypocrisy. And he gets right to it in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cause of Christ. In verse 13 into 13, it says, "They desire to have you circumcised, so they, they may boast in your flesh." Their motive was twofold: to avoid persecution and to win the praise of men. Their motive twofold to avoid persecution, and to win the praise of men. When it's all said and done and the pen in his own hands, the two things that he wants to warn the church of Galatia about, and certainly us reading this a couple thousand years later, the two things he warns us about is the fear of human opposition and the love of human praise. The fear of human opposition, conflict, and the love and desire we have for human praise. And these two really go hand in hand. And I ultimately, as I think about this and read this dozens of times, I think the idol here is this idol of comfort. Most of us don't like conflict. We don't like to be uncomfortable. And for that very reason, Jesus uses this illustration of the cross again and again. You have to take up your cross and follow me, he says. Many times throughout the Gospel of Luke and other places, most of us don't like to be uncomfortable, but to embrace the cross of Christ will ultimately lead to conflict because the cross itself is a stumbling block for those who don't believe. This isn't the first time either the Bible's warned us of these dangerous mindsets, the fear of human opposition, the love of human praise. In 1 Corinthians 123, Paul says to the church at Corinth, "But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles." The Jews thought that they could get their way to heaven without the cross. The Gentiles thought the cross was nonsense to think that a perfect God would leave heaven and die for his people. It was offensive to the Jews and the Gentiles thought it was nonsense. But that's what the gospel is. Without the cross, there is no gospel. Without the shedding of the blood of Jesus, there is no gospel. I mean, Paul was just, uh, he was on this. He was not going to let this go. One last time exposing their hypocrisy, their desire to love human praise and to fear human opposition or persecution. Don't you see a little of that, maybe alive in your own heart? I mean, it's natural for none of us to like conflict, but to this degree, it was paralyzing them. There's another place Jesus talked about this in John 12, verse 42. He says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, believed in Jesus, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These would-be disciples were tempted to hide their allegiance to Jesus for fear of what the Pharisees might do. This is known as fear of man. Maybe you're reluctant to admitting it, but this is something that many of us are prone to fall prey to. Here's a definition from J.R. Vassar in his book, Glory Hunger. The fear of man is an excessive concern about people's opinions of us and a desire for their acceptance. It's the hunger for human approval and the fear of rejection the fear of man is an intemperate desire to be accepted by people with an accompanying fear of being rejected or victimized now these are legitimate desires it's a legitimate desire to want to be accepted legitimate desire to fear rejection none of us want that but the problem is when these natural and legitimate desires become inordinate or they become excessive they become controlling when we become consumed with what people think about us. When we become confi- filled with excessive concerns over how we look or appear before people or what this person or that person might think about us. Even people we don't know. An excessive controlling fixation on people's opinions. Even people we don't know, that's the fear of men. And what happens is we start to define ourselves by other people's perception of us. It's not even necessarily their perceptions of us, but how we perceive their perceptions of us, and we easily get enslaved to the fear of man. This is so true. I see this in my kids so very clearly. Claire, my oldest, is very concerned about how she looks and how she looks compared to the other people at her school and what's in and what's out. And my Ellie Joyce, my middle child, she doesn't even know when she has clothes on or not clothes. She just literally could care less. Uh, She shows up. uh, We went to school just a couple weeks ago. We're about to get out of the truck. She's got one shoe on. And it's not like she's three, right? She's seven. She should know when she has shoes or not shoes. But this idea, this perception that sometimes controls us. And Paul is adamant that we not get enslaved to this because it perverts the gospel. Why are these things so dangerous? This desire for human praise and this fear of human rejection. Because if your life is governed by the fear of being rejected, and if your life is governed by the love of being praised, then you cannot really embrace the cross of Christ. These legalists have to rely on their own morality instead of the cross of Christ because the cross puts an end to all their pride, and it lays them open to persecution. But according to these two verses, they want to avoid persecution at all costs. And they're so proud of their own religious zeal. And so they reject the cross. The cross of Christ is a great stumbling block for proud people. Those who refuse to humble themselves before God and before man. And Paul is so adamant that this young church not get caught up in these traps of believing these false gospels. Are falling for this lure of the cross of Christ without sacrifice. And not only are they believing this, but you see in the passage where it says they're trying to force this upon these churches in Galatia. In verse 12. For it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to look like them. Paul comes right at them. He explains and exposes their motives. He says that they only want to uh, obey certain parts of the law. They only want to obey selective parts of the law. They only want to boast in the parts of the law that they're really good at. They only obey the parts of the law that help them to fit in. They only want to boast in the parts that make them look good or the parts they want want to keep. Of course, this argument, you can tell just as reading it, it seems so silly. Imagine I was pulled over by a police officer on the way home from marriage retreat yesterday, and I was going 90 in a 70, and the officer said, uh, sir, you were speeding, and I said, well, that's okay, officer. I can't tell you how many laws I was actually keeping. I kept a lot of laws. I stayed in my lane. I wasn't killing anyone at the, at the moment. I'm not cheating on it. I just, this one thing, could you please let me go? And he He would probably arrest me if I came up with that excuse. If I told my wife, Ashley, my plan is to keep my marriage covenant with you almost all year. 364 days I will keep my marriage covenant, but not 365. If I did such a thing, I would be an adulterer, right? That's ridiculous to even mention such things. In the same way, these people are coming to Scripture. They're looking back at God's law, and they're only boasting in certain parts of it, and Paul's exposing them for this. He says in verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They don't keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They care what everyone else thinks about them. They care what everyone else thinks about the company that they keep. And so they elevate this one thing. In the same way that we're tempted to do that, we have our favorite passages. We have the areas of God's law that we don't want to extend any grace past this. You know, you can cheat on your taxes. That's, that's okay. But, but this one thing that we're not going to fudge on. One of my mentors refers to this as Dalmatian theology. That I only want to embrace the certain parts of scripture that I find pleasant or easy for me. I like this part and that part. And do you see how dangerous this is? You to see how dangerous that this false gospel can creep into a church, even to a pastor. There are certain things that I love to preach about. But we made a commitment when we started this church that we were going to try to walk through books. For most of the time we're going to walk through books. That way I don't get to select the sugar sticks that I love to preach about. No, we got to talk about These passages and hard and difficult passages, and passages at the end of the day that I'm scratching my head, and I said, I have no idea what that means. Do you see how dangerous this is? Augustine, speaking of this same attitude, only believing certain parts of the law, he says, If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. You believe. So not only do they obey obey selective parts of the law, he exposes their other motive, which was boasting in their flesh as to avoid persecution. The clear sign of unbelief is to be found in their tendency to boast in themselves. When the only legitimate ground for boasting is God. This is how you recognize immaturity in some believers... And unbelieving faith in others. Maybe you've been around those people, supposed Christians, and they could be Christians and just off the right path, but you're around them and their mantra is, Look at me or look at what I've done. When you're around them very long, they have a false humility to brag on what they've accomplished. They like to compare themselves to other Christians boasting in how well they keep the law. This was the picture of the older brother in the prodigal in Luke 15. Remember the younger son had demanded an inheritance from the father. He had went away and spent it foolishly father, eager for his son to come home, stands on the front porch looking. The son finally does make his way home. The father runs out to greet him. He's throwing this lavish party. My son, who has been lost, has now been found. He has been away, and now he's at home. Let's celebrate the return of the son. And what happened to the older brother? The older brother wasn't relishing in grace. He wasn't looking at God's law and God's grace. What he was doing is boasting in himself. How dare you, Father, extend grace to him. The end of the story, the passage, the son is inside reveling with all of the, uh, he's celebrating, he's come home. But the older brother, the legalist, he's on the outside refusing to come inside. This is the picture of these Judaizers. They want to boast in themselves, boast in how well they keep the law, And if that is your natural tendency, beware. The core doctrine of Christianity is us boasting in the cross of Jesus as our only hope for heaven and the greatest picture of love in the history of the universe. This leads Paul to verse 14, probably uh, one of the greatest heart-capturing verses in this passage. After exposing their motives... Of boasting in the flesh, he says in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To boast only in the cross. This is Paul's way of saying that he's burned the ships. This is Paul's way of saying that there's nothing that matters to him anymore but the cross of Christ. There's no reason to boast. There's no reason to brag. There's no look at me of what I've done. Everything in his entire life is, man, would you look at Jesus? Would you look at Jesus? Everything. Would you look at Jesus? If anything else that he may have used to find reason to boast in, and there's a list of those in Philippians... There's nothing for him anymore that stands in comparison with the cross of Christ. And it's not just Christ. Notice how he says the cross of Christ. It wasn't just Christ. It was that Christ himself had to die. I want to mention three things quickly about the cross of Christ. First, the necessity of it. The difficulty is the cross because of the cross speaks of the necessity of a divine death as the only solution for our sin. The only solution for our sin is not you go work harder, you try harder, you be better. No, actually God had to bankrupt heaven with Jesus and he sent Jesus and Jesus didn't have to come and suffer just a little bit. He had to actually give his life for our ransom. It's so what Romans speaks about in chapter four, verse 25. He was delivered up, maybe you'd underline that if you underline in your Bible, for our trespasses for that's another word for sin he was delivered up for our sin was raised up for our justification this is the reason that jesus came there is no christianity without the cross the cross is a stumbling block because it screams of the depravity of man. In a world where we want to think that basic human nature, that we're good people. Maybe you've heard that. Well, maybe that's an argument you've heard against Christianity. Would well, God, A loving God would never send anyone to hell because, because we're just by nature good people. But the Bible reminds us of just the opposite. That the heart is wicked, it says. The cross is the greatest monument to our depravity. It leads us to another reason why the cross is a stumbling block. Because our heart is wicked. All of mankind under the curse of sin. That we are not good, the Bible says again and again. None of, no righteousness we have can stand before God. You on your best day. I mean, when you're killing it, and you woke up at 4 a.m., and you've been praying, and you have casting out demons, and you're healing people, or whatever, the ultimate, right, Christian, supernatural, powerful day is for you, God says, that's not enough. You, in your own righteousness, will never be able to stand before a holy God. That's why the cross is necessary. Our sin brings us under the curse of God, which curse Christ bore There's nothing man can do to earn salvation, for if it were possible, then the cross would have not been necessary. That's what Paul says back in chapter 2 and verse 21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were to be found by you doing really good, if righteousness, were to be accomplished by you having a day where you just kill it. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. These doctrines humble men. Not only are we sinful, but we're so sinful that God had to die for us. Consequently, men hate the cross and actively persecute those who proclaim it. And it would be foolish for us, church, to think that we could live Christian lives embracing the cross, and not expect some level of persecution, not expect some people in your family just not to get it, to look at you and the way you love sacrificially and the way you invest and you give to kingdom resources. I can't tell you how many times that Jason and I have talked about this, of conversations going on around him with even extended family and friends. Man, why would you do this? Why would you, why would you spend all this money and go all the way and adopt a special needs baby who's going to come into your home and your life is never going to be the same. Why would you do that? Because of the gospel. And when you really embrace the cross of Christ, when you really liquidate some of your assets so that you can extend the mission of God, when, when you really open up your home to others, when you invest in serving and giving your life for the very causes of Christ, there's going to be the watching world who do not understand that. And some people who maybe you once considered close friends are going to look at you and say, man, I think you've lost your mind. John Stott says this, every time we look at the cross of Christ, it seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated, inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. The cross was necessary. The cross was sufficient. The sufficiency of the cross... Again, verse 21 of chapter 2, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. It was sufficient. But it was not just that it was a cross that he died on. There were many that had died on a cross, two others on either side of him, the very moment that Jesus was dying on the cross. The cross itself was not divine I feel like we get a little caught up in this sometimes. Maybe there's this tendency of this cross worship, but it's not the cross itself that we worship, but the sinless Son of God who died on that cross in our place. Colossians 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, you couldn't meet the law, Paul says, God made alive together with him, being Jesus, having forgiven us of all of our sin or trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When you were called up in your own self-righteousness, Even while we were yet sinners, it says that Christ died for us. And we had this demand against us. We had this debt that we could not pay. We were condemned in our own sins. It says in verse 14, we had this record of debt that stood against us. And it had legal demands. And what we deserved was eternal separation from a holy God in a place called hell. That's what we earned because of our sin. But even in spite of that... I love that last phrase. It says this, Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. You ever had this desire as a parent when your kids are sick, that you'd rather just be sick? Because it's just so hard to watch your kids suffer. Just, it's so painful to see them hurt, to see them suffer. You just wish, maybe you could take on a bit of this suffering, and the loving Father from heaven looks down on us in our sinful condition, offended by our sin. But sends Jesus to take on our sin, to suffer in our place, that He became condemned so that we could be free. He took upon the darkness so that we could live in the light. He took upon our condemnation so that we could be free. The cross was sufficient. Paul says in many places, nothing else needed to add to the cross of Christ for you to become a believer, to be part of God's family. And some of you even, as I said earlier, might be on the, on the outside looking in here. You have no idea what this Jesus Christ or Christianity is really about. We've heard the name a lot, but this is the gospel that because of your sin that you are separated from God and God sent Jesus who lived a holy and blameless life To take on your punishment on the cross and the offer to you is salvation. It's eternal life for all those who place their faith and trust in him. And my prayer has been, even this morning as we gathered over in that corner, that some of you would take a step today, that you would cross this line of faith, that this would move from being this religion that you've heard about to this actual relationship with Jesus. The cross was necessary, it was sufficient, but finally it has transformative powers. It's not just this idea we believe, this cognitive or intellectual assent that we give it. Look at it again in verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's not saying that the world itself had died. No, the world's still alive. It's still alive even for us. We live in the world with all of its themes and its desires and its worldview. Paul's not saying the world itself had died. No, it's still alive and well. It had just died to Paul and him to it. It no longer was the controlling influence on him that it once had been. Nearly 20 years ago, I heard a guy named John Piper preach on this passage at Passion's One Day event and it changed my life, and I don't believe everything that Piper might say or quote, but this one day, passion one day, it was in 2000 that he preached to this group of college students. I wasn't there, but my friend brought home a CD with him. I put it in my Sony Walkman and listened to this message while I was cutting grass I remember it like it was yesterday. I didn't get very far through cutting the grass and I pulled over next to the woods that accompanied the property I was cutting and I wept like a baby. Because for the first time in all my years, I've been a believer, but this idea the cross of Christ had not gripped my heart like this before. The cross to me was this ATM exchange where I typed in the right code, And I gave, I said the right things, and I prayed the right prayers, and I'm going to go to heaven one day. But the rest of my life, I'm going to be good and nice. But I can kind of live according to myself, and I can chase after my dreams. And at that moment, my dream was making money as much as I possibly could. And I was pretty good at it. This is how Piper opened up that message. I don't have it on the screen. I just want to read it to you. You don't have to know a lot of things, he says to these college students, tens of thousands of them gathered in a field in Tennessee. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know a few great things that really matter, and then be willing to live for them and to die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the very ends of the earth and roll on for centuries into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ, he says. You don't have to have good works or good looks or good riches. You don't have to come from a fine family. Or from a fine school, you just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and then be set on fire by them. He went on to look at these college students and to challenge them that they would surround their life with this one aim, to boast only in the cross. Not in their degrees that they were earning, not in their occupations as some would be doctors and lawyers and engineers and architects. That that not be the main defining thing about them. But the one thing that they would aim their life towards, the trajectory of their life, the one thing that they would return to is that they would boast in the cross and only in the cross of Jesus. Paul says this with such conviction here. He writes with these large letters. He says, if you, this young church, if you would just embrace this thing, if you would be set on fire by this one thing, then we could change the landscape of the world, and they did. In just a few short years, this gospel message had come from Bethlehem, and it spread throughout Israel, Israel, But a few short years it's in Asia Minor, it's in Caesar's own household. It just sweeps the landscape. Because a few believers didn't have a high IQ or EQ. Didn't the smart people of the day, didn't they laugh at these young disciples? Didn't they say, who are these unlearned men? Nobody had a more single-minded vision for his life than Paul did. He said it in so many different ways in Acts 20:24. 20, he said, "I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." This one thing mattered, he says, to finish my course and to run my race. He says it a different way in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish or refuse in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see this? aim of Paul do you see even at the end when he's writing to Timothy he said young Timothy I have poured out my life for this one cause I was thinking about this today and we just came from a marriage conference this weekend as this one thing this is the thing that I want my kids to see in me that the dad may not have accomplished much, and we may not have grown a large church, and whatever it is that we that we can put our hands on, but that that I was about the cross of Christ and boasting only in the cross. And we can do a lot of things with our kids and put them in the best schools and make sure. They get the best grades, and make sure we set them up with an inheritance, and they start on a uh, their floor starts on our ceiling that we've lifted them up, and we've given them everything. But if we fail to communicate that our life should revolve around the cross of Christ, then we have failed as parents. And not that we can force them to make that step, but we can, what we say before the illustration, we can can set the sail and we can pray that the Holy Spirit and that wind would begin to blow. And this is why I remind us of this this morning, that the cross of Christ is this essential doctrine of Christianity. Without the cross, our only hope is judgment and condemnation. Without the cross, we are helpless and hopeless, drowning in our own sin and hostility to God. John Piper took that message and made it into a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Let me read one little excerpt from that, and we're going to be done. Teenagers in here, I want you to hear this. You're at such a great starting place to navigate the trajectory of your life towards this. Piper says, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. Paul says with large letters, boast only in cross he ends this way for neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision but a new creation and as for all who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the israel of god from now on let no one cause me trouble for i bear on my body the marks of jesus The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I love how he uses this phrase, first time I read it, it confused me, and upon the Israel of God. And what Paul is saying is there was the nation of Israel, the physical nation that you had to be born in to be part of, but Paul's talking here about the new nation of Israel doesn't require you to be Jew for entrance in. It's just everybody who places their faith in Jesus becomes part of God's family. And we walk in that new identity. Now, it's easy, if you're like me, to lose track. It's easy to get swept up by the things of the world. It's easy for us to fill our calendars, to fill our minds, to fill our directions with things that ultimately, in the end, don't matter. We, We begin to boast in other things. Paul warns us again and again to boast only in the cross. This is our new identity, family. This is who we are. So whatever life brings, tragedy or triumph, great loss or great victory, some of us as in God's plan for our lives, we'll end up with great favor with very important people and likely stand on great stages before the world. And some of us may never see a great stage as the world would count it, but we're just faithfully sowing seeds into the life of our kids and where we work and where we play in the neighborhoods that God's planted us in. But it doesn't matter what stage we get on. What matters is that our life is about boasting in the cross, finding our identity in the cross. That word boast means glory in, or and it's this Hebrew word for like the weightiness or, the, or what matters in our life. The weightiness of our life is found only in the cross. I'm going to pray for us in a minute, and we're going to take communion. Communion wasn't on the agenda today because we're going to talk through Lent, but I don't know how we can talk through the cross without celebrating with communion. This is this great physical reminder for us of this inward reality that really happened that now those of us in here who unite and say, you know what, we're boasting in nothing but Jesus and his cross. We're saying this is what identifies us as family. This is what makes us the Israel of God this morning. Not where we come from, but certainly where we're going. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in this. The Bible just says you have to be part of God's family. So if you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you desire to be obedient to him, we'll give you some time to think and repent of anything that God may have laid on your heart, and then I invite you to come when you're ready. If you're part of, you're part of this church, if you're in this room and you've never really given your life to Jesus. I invite you to do that today. To step across this line of faith. I'm going to be in the back and I'd love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. Would you, would you pray with me and just take a few moments of silence. I know I've been kind of screamy today. I'm sorry about that. I'm channeling my inner Jason. Would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to put his hand on your heart to emphasize the things that you really need to hear. Maybe it's conviction about something that you've let creep in. Maybe it's a lifestyle of sin that you've embraced. Maybe you've taken on this new identity. Maybe you're living for the world. Maybe you're on the edge of despair. And you would say through your tears, Christ be my strength the Bible says in his kindness God leads us to repentance that's what's beautiful about the gospel it doesn't matter if we failed miserably our father's inviting us to come close Father God, I thank you for